Amen. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We bless your name for Christ's sake. We thank you for you are worthy of glory and honor. We thank you, Lord, for your name is holy. We thank you, Lord, for your people whom you purchased by your own blood. We thank you for your wonderful gospel and for giving us the ears to hear it and the desire, Lord, to continue to come and hear what says the Lord. We ask now that you help us with hearing. May you show the scriptures to us that we may see Christ lifted up. For he said, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he is drawing all men from every corner of the world. As many as were ordained to eternal life, as many as were given to him by the Father. We thank you. We bless your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in the book of John, chapter 11. I think we may have at most two more sermons and then we are done with John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11, verses 36 to 44. And I'm reading from the New King James. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. The word of the Lord. And our title, we have three titles. <laughs> See how he loved him. See how he loved him. Or take away the stone. Take away the stone. And the last title is Loose Him and Let Him Go. Loose Him and Let Him Go. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus is still on his way to where he was buried. Jesus, as God works everything by appointment, he works everything on schedule. And this is why even in the Old Testament, they had the feast. The feast actually were just appointed times. It just means appointed times. So the feasts that Israel had to observe were the appointed times that God was teaching us about particular things that were to happen when Christ showed up. They told us about when Christ was going to be born and when Christ was going to die and how he was going to die. It was all preached in the feasts, the appointed times. And so this is the same God who has come to Lazarus and he is working on a particular schedule. And his current schedule 
says he has to be at Mary and Martha's house four days from the time that he received the message of Lazarus' sickness. And on this fourth day, he has finally arrived, but it feels late to Mary and Martha, and so they protested to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And they were correct. If Jesus had been there, their brother would not have died. So, yes, we'll give that to them, but Jesus needed not to be there for Lazarus to live. (laughs) When you read the Gospels, we have no record of anyone dying in the presence of Jesus. There's no person who ever died in the presence of Jesus. And even on the cross, Jesus died first before the two thieves. So they are right in that regard. But then Jesus is not limited by distance to stop death or to prevent sickness. Distance is never an issue for one who is the omnipotent one. But Jesus along the way to Bethany had other appointments with a blind beggar, but Mears and Zacchaeus in Jericho, he had to meet with Zacchaeus and he had to make a board at Zacchaeus' house for a minute before he proceeded to be with Mary and Martha. And if you still remember the testimony of the scriptures, Jesus also healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman from distance. Jesus knew exactly who she was and where she was. And he sent the message of healing and she was healed. So Jesus is never limited by anything to do what he wants to do. And Lazarus would not have died if Jesus had no use with his death. I think Lazarus was the youngest of the three. And so I take it that he was still a very young man. And yet he died not just because he got sick, but because Jesus had purpose with his sickness and death, as we shall see. Okay, Lazarus got sick and died because the Lord had use of his sickness and death. But Jesus said the sickness of Lazarus was not unto a permanent death. Because that is the story of all those that get sick and die in Christ. This is not about Lazarus. This is about the gospel. The sickness of those that the Lord loves, those who have the testimony that Jesus loves them, is not unto death. Death is not the final commentary on their life. The resurrection is the final commentary of their life. So the sickness of sin that we have as God's people is not unto a permanent death. The sickness of sin is to the glory of God that the Son, Jesus Christ, may be glorified in our salvation. And so Jesus is preaching the gospel. And even in this context, Lazarus has to die that those who were at Mary and Martha's house and even his own disciples would believe that he was the son of God. So the sickness and death of Lazarus was part of what Jesus was doing to teach them about his identity. 
to tell them that he was the son of God. See just how hard it is for men to believe that Jesus is God. These men have seen Jesus performing a lot of miracles. And they have been with Jesus on a day-to-day basis, and yet they still do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Even his own brothers from the same house, they did not believe that he was the Son of God. Why? Because it is impossible to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not hard to believe that Jesus Christ is God. It's impossible. Unless God teaches you and gives you the testimony of Christ. He has to teach you that Christ is the Son of God and He has to teach you the gospel of grace. So even those who saw the miracles of Jesus still needed to be given more proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But Lazarus has to die also because the death of Lazarus is the trigger that takes us to the cross. It is an important time marker in salvation history because it was a rehearsal of the coming death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Because from then onwards, the Jews were more than determined to seize Jesus as to put him to death. They were even more determined after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And God is sovereignly working behind the scenes to ramp up their hatred of Jesus so that they can raise him up on the cross on the Passover day for the hour of the glorification of the Son of God has come. We are nearing the hour of the glorification of Christ on the cross. And he has to be put on the cross by the hands of sinful men. And so sinful men have to hate him that they may find reason to crucify him. And for this reason, the death of Lazarus was the last recorded miracle by John before the cross. And this miracle anticipated and explained also the resurrection of the dead who are in Christ by the voice of the Son of God. So the resurrection of Lazarus bears much testimony about many things. It bears testimony also that Jesus is the life and the resurrection. If Jesus comes and claims that he is the life and the resurrection, he is saying, I am God. Because every Jew understood that life and resurrection was only in the power of one who was God. So Jesus is asserting his deity in the ears of the hearers. But knowing all this, Jesus weeps. He weeps for Lazarus even though he knew he was going to raise him. He weeps for Lazarus because he loved him. Jesus loved his sheep and he still does. He does love his sheep. Remember the message that was sent. John 11 verse 3. 
by the sisters to Jesus. The sisters said, they sent the messenger with a very simple message saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That was the simple message that was sent to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 5 of John 11, we hear this also, that now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then in John 11, verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So we have a threefold testimony of Jesus' love for Lazarus. Jesus loves Lazarus. And the testimony of the love of Jesus for Lazarus cannot be downplayed. We can't explain that away. But some people will say, well, Jesus did not weep for Lazarus since he already knew that he was going to raise him. But if that argument is true, then why did Jesus weep? And why was he sweating? Why did he ask the father to remove the cup from him if he knew that he was going to be resurrected? Because Jesus already said in John chapter 10 that he was going to put down his own life and he was going to take it back up. So if that is true, then are we to say that Jesus was faking his crying, his weeping, either for Lazarus or his weeping as he was going on the cross. No, there was nothing that Jesus was feigning. Everything was as real as he was doing it. When Christ wept for Lazarus, he was weeping for Lazarus because he hated death. He is the good shepherd. And for a moment, for a minute, he realizes this is the very enemy that he came to remove. And one of his sheep is now, for a minute, in the hands of the devil and death. Jesus knows that. But not only that, Jesus is weeping to demonstrate the truth of his humanity. Jesus has emotions. Remember, the issue of salvation is the overcoming of sin, death, condemnation, and the evil one. And for Lazarus, he has been overcome by all these things. Lazarus has been overcome by all these things. And it feels like they have won. And it feels like they've won. Because if Jesus has not yet died, these things will continue to hold sway on God's people. But Lazarus is Jesus' friend. There were a lot of people who died in Palestine during this time that Jesus did not cry for. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. Lazarus was loved of the Lord. And the Lord, as the good shepherd of the sheep, is not insensitive to the weaknesses and trials of his ship. He identifies with his ship. Hebrews 4, 15, the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
when Jesus was weeping, he was weeping as the high priest. He was tempted in all points, in all the weaknesses of humanity, yet without sin. And so whatever emotion that we have had, Jesus also experienced it, but without sin. Jesus experienced loss in a way that you and I would not experience loss because he was sinless. Jesus experienced temptation more than you and I could ever experience. Why? Because he was sinless. You and I, if we get tempted, we buckle up within a minute. But because Jesus is righteous, that temptation will come full strength and he continues to resist it. So Jesus knows everything about the weaknesses of humanity and yet without sinning. So the Lord is not far from his people. He is not a distant God. He was tempted in all the weaknesses of his people and yet without sin. And he may have had some other reasons for weeping, which we may explore, but we can't minimize that he wept for Lazarus. We can't minimize that fact. So Jesus attends the funeral of Lazarus and what a blessing to have Jesus as one of your mourners. Imagine you have died and one of the people who show up at your gravesite is Jesus himself. <laughs> what a blessing. What a blessing to have Jesus as one of your mourners and blessed are they who have Jesus visiting them in their graves because they shall be raised. Salvation is when Jesus shows up at your own tomb and commands you to come out. That is salvation. And Jesus weeps for all those that the Father gave to him. Jesus did not just weep for Lazarus. In weeping for Lazarus, Jesus was weeping for all those that were given to him. Jesus has already shed tears for every one of the sheep. Because we were Lazarus. In every way, we were Lazarus. There's nowhere in any culture where death happens and there's no weeping. Nowhere. And so, Christ also has to weep for his loved ones. And if Jesus did not die for you, you have no hope. Because for everyone that he weeps for, he raises. <laughs> he raises. But Jesus mourns for all his people, not because of helplessness. Jesus did not mourn because he was helpless. And yet the testimony of those who were around him seemed to suggest that in their mind, Jesus was helpless in the face of death. That's what they're thinking. But Jesus is weeping because of identification and union with his people. Weeping is part of what qualified him to be the merciful high priest. He surely was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He saw the burden that sin and death imposed on his people. 
but they could not just be removed until the appointed time. But he comes to Lazarus this way because the sickness and death of Lazarus and all of his people are to the glory of God. That the Son of God may be glorified. This is about glory. Salvation is about glory. Sin is about glory. But he also comes this way because he, in that glory, is showing his love for Lazarus. But there's some very important understanding that we can also glean from what is happening to this family. We see that even those that the Lord loves are not exempt from trials. They received the testimony that the Lord loved them. This one who had power over all things and yet sickness happened in their family. Death happened in their family. Even this one who lay on the chest of Jesus succumbed to death when Jesus was there. And even more, Jesus was aware of it. Those who are loved of the Lord and have believed the gospel have passed from death to life. That's the testimony of Jesus. You have already passed from death to life. But we are not exempt from the trials of life. We are not exempt from sickness. It is appointed for us to suffer. But victory has also been appointed for us. It is part of the Christian journey. It's part of the story that God wrote for us whom he loves. Just some other pointer to Lazarus and Jesus. Pay attention to what the text says. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. It is Jesus who loves Lazarus. Yes, it's true that Lazarus loves Jesus, but Lazarus loves Jesus because he was first loved of Christ. Lazarus is elect of Christ. Mary and Martha were elect of Christ and they were not loved because of their brother. No, they were each loved individually as Mary and Martha. Jesus had a particular love for each one of them. Jesus did not love the sisters because they made cookies and free food for him with his disciples. No, Jesus, in loving them, was not reacting to anything that they did for him. That is not the love of God. That is not the condition of God's love for his people. The love of God towards his people is free, which means it's unconditional, which means it is found in God himself. It is uncaused by what the person does or does not do. Because if the love of God depends on what you do or you don't do, then you are constantly falling in and out of the love of God. And there's no hope in that. The love of God towards us who are sinners has to be unconditional. Because there's no amount of goodness, if we had any, that can be found in a sinner to cause God to desire us on that basis alone. Impossible. And that would make God a respecter of persons. 
and God would love Oprah more than anybody else. <laughs> Whatever we are and we do comes from God. We are what we are because God was pleased to make us exactly who we are. He is glorified in us being who we are. We are each doing exactly what will glorify God. God is glorified in our weaknesses, in everything that has happened already in our lives, and everything that shall happen between now and death, and everything that shall happen after that. He is working out his purpose in Christ Jesus. But the love that Jesus has for his people is the love of God that he has towards those that he gave to the Son. We are going to work on the love of God for a while because it's an important subject and I've been seeing it a lot discussed on Facebook and different places and people don't really know how to answer with proper understanding what it means to say God is love. Because a lot of people, they are saying, well, if God is love, then it means he loves all men the same way. Well, if God loves all men the same way, then he has no choice but to save all men. But the testimony of the scriptures say, well, there's a place called hell, and not all men are going to go to heaven. There are some, like Judas, who shall go to hell. Let's go to First John, verse, First John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. First John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Apostle John writes and says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Humans born in Adam do not naturally love unless God has caused them to love. Everyone who loves is born of God and they know God. Why? Because God is the cause and source of love. God is love. That's the testimony of the scriptures. But that does not mean that he loves all men the same way. Because if he did, then all men will be saved and would have the same toys. It would abound over and above the sin and disobedience of all his creatures. And so the demons and Satan and all those who hate Christ will be saved. If his love means he loves all men who ever existed, then God would save all men because he is not lacking in power to save all if that was his purpose. God's love is not measured sentimentally like he actually has our pictures on his fridge in heaven somewhere. And that is usually the thinking that people have, that God is so desperate to just give people hugs. 
and that he is so desperate to have companionship from his creatures. No, that's not correct. We need to pay attention to the text. The love of God towards his creatures is redemptive. It is expressed redemptively so that all those that he saves are they whom he loves. Pay attention to verse 9 of First John 4. What does he say? He says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us. How? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So the love of God is demonstrated in the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ is a demonstration of God's love. Not a strong economy. No. Not money at the bank. No. The coming of Christ. Listen to verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. How? And sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins. So the love of God is redemptive. Is expressed in salvation. And this love of God is tied to his glory. He loves some to demonstrate this part of his nature. But that is not all there is to God. That is not saying God is love and only love. There's more to God. He hates some. He hates the wicked to demonstrate his wrath. Right? He created the wicked for the day. Right? So that we may have a complete picture of who he is. God is drawing for us a picture of who he is. And he is putting the whole picture together in the work of salvation. So the love of God has to be understood in the context of everything that the scriptures reveal about him. The scriptures say God is holy. Jesus, when he was teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is thy name. He didn't say, love is thy name. The angels in Isaiah chapter 6, what were they singing? Love, 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 love. No. They were singing and praising God for his holiness. The scriptures say, God is holy, which means he is separate. He is none other than anything else that exists. There's no one like him. He is perfectly righteous and good and free from sin. There's nothing else that exists that is like unto our God. Isaiah 46, 5, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. <laughs> and that is a rhetoric question. And the expected answer is no one. <laughs> it is not correct to define God one way when we have other testimony of who he is. That is to make an idol. The love of God is first and foremost directed towards himself. God loves himself. That is why he hates you and I when we love ourselves. 
Because when we do that, that's pride. There's nothing, nothing worthy of adoration in a sinner. But he is all things and from whom are all things and in him all things consist. And so he's worthy of all glory and love. So he loves himself. Not like what Oprah said. Oprah said, well, she hates the God of the Bible because he is jealousy of the Oprah show. The God of the Bible who created all things, who causes the sun to rise and the earth to keep spinning and the rains and the winds and the seas and the animals and everything in creation is the one who is jealousy and is coveting the Oprah show. That's the foolishness of man. God loves himself. He glories in his own perfection because he alone is worthy of adoration. And God alone can appreciate the perfection of God. Only God alone can appreciate the perfection that is God. And because of that, he alone can render to himself the true worship that he deserves. Because he knows his value. And so God created all things that they may adore and worship his perfection. That's what is going on. Creation and salvation are God glorying in his own perfection and power. That is why creation exists. All created things belong to God. Listen to Revelation 4.11. John writes for us and says, You are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor. Just listen to the language. You are worthy. Revelation 4.11 You are worthy, O Lord, to do what? To receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. (laughs) And by your will, they exist and were created. So creation is there To appreciate the majesty, power, glory, beauty, perfection of God. And so God would come and say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. I have created you. I fed you. I made sure you did not die from the Nile virus. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. That's the God of the Bible. And that's the only God that exists. Perfection and power demands recognition. We're going to work this understanding. Perfection and power demands recognition. Hollywood knows it. And people make millions of dollars for displaying their depraved human perfection in films and walking on the red carpet. And people faint at the sight of the idols, the celebrities. Why? Because they are appreciating some form of perfection. And that did not begin with men. God is the real object of adoration because he alone is perfect. And his perfection is put on display in salvation and condemnation. Salvation is not a government cheese program to help desperate people. It's not. 
It is part of God's purpose in Christ to reveal his glory. The glory of God needs a dark background or a screen onto which it can be projected. The glory of God has to be projected onto some screen that it can be seen. You can't go and watch a movie without the screen. And you need the darkness so that you may see the high definition pictures. So sin is the background that brings into high definition the glorious attributes of who God is. And Jesus Christ is the person through whom God reveals himself. And so he would come and say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In Christ Jesus, God is honored as God in salvation and judgment. The moment that you have Jesus, you have salvation and judgment. And that's the story from Genesis to Revelation. God reveals himself through the Son because everything is mediated by and through the Son. Everything was created through the Son. And for him, judgment and salvation were given to the Son. He said the Father does not judge anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son as the Father is honored. So salvation is God's purpose to teach you and I about who God is in the face of Christ. And without sin, we could not know who God is. Because the cross is necessary for us to know who he is. The cross reveals the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, the mercy, the love of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. And without sin, we would not know what eternal life is. Because to have eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Whom he sent. Without sin, there's no imputed righteousness. And without imputed righteousness, there's no life. You could not have life from Adam. Adam did not have life to give. Life can only be given by one who has it. Adam has only Sin to give you nothing else. (laughs) Nothing. Even if Adam had not sinned, he still did not have anything to give you. So without sin, there's no grace. And without grace, there's no salvation. Because there's no other law that God has given by which we may be saved. There's no other means by which you and I can have righteousness and eternal life outside the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So God loves the Son God the Father loves the Son because his love for the Son is love for himself. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. Listen to him. And the whole world is not listening to Christ. (laughs) The Muslims are not listening to Christ. They hate him. But the Father loves the Son because Jesus perfectly bears the image of the Father. In Hebrews 1, 3, we are told of Christ who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That is Christ. 
So this Christ is loved of God and the love that God has for Jesus has no strings attached. It is not a conditional love. It is not scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The father already loves the person of the son because in the son, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. (laughs) When God loves Jesus, he is loving himself because Jesus is God. God loves the beauty, the glory and majesty of the son when it's been put on display. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he says, Father, I desire that all those that you gave me will come and behold of the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. So God's love is in and towards his son. The love of God is directed towards Jesus Christ. And that love for Christ is what caused God to give the son all things. Because when you read the book of John, it says, the father loves the son, therefore he has given him all things. For love is truly love when it freely gives to the one who is loved. So the father gave a people to Christ as his possession. And those who are in Christ are loved because they are in the son. They are loved because of their position in the Son. They are in Christ who is in the bosom of the Father. They are sinners in Adam but loved in Christ. They are in the one that the Father loves. And so they are loved derivatively, not intrinsically. I have to explain that. By that I mean God does not love me for me because naturally I am a stinky sinner, even a God-hater. But I am loved because I am in the one that he loves. And because I am in the one that he loves, you can't separate me from him. (laughs) In spite of my stinkiness. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Nobody. Why? You need to separate the love of God from Christ. It's not going to happen. So all those who are in Christ are loved because they are in Christ, but they can never be separated from Christ because God loves Christ. And God will never stop loving Christ. So that's the hope of salvation. And that's the mystery of the gospel. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. With an everlasting love. The elect are in Christ. They were put in Christ before the foundation of the world. And since Christ was always loved of the Father, the elect were always loved. Of the Father. And for that reason, He has drawn us by the gospel. He has drawn us because He loves us on account of Christ. Now we are inseparable from Christ. And by the way, God did not learn to love because 
he saw sinners buying birthday and Christmas gifts. And he said, oh, Jesus, look, that's a very, very good idea. <laughs> that's so cool. We sh- also should learn how to get each other some birthday gifts and things like that. No, it doesn't work like that. The love of God is eternal. It's an everlasting love. And it's immutable in Christ. It's unchangeable. Okay. Here's some other point. We'll get to Lazarus in the next five minutes, if you can believe me. Only Christ can experience the fullness of the goodness and love of God. Only Jesus. Why? Because it requires one who is God to experience the fullness of the love of God. And for that reason, the love of God has to be channeled through a God-man. It has to be filtered through the person of Christ to us. And we also have to be glorified to feel the beauty of that love. Otherwise, it will drive us insane. Our bodies cannot experience the goodness of God's love at this present time. We will go insane. I'm telling you the truth. You have to be glorified because the love of God comes with all the goodness of who God is. And this body, as an earthly tent, cannot experience the love of God. It's corruptible. To experience the love of God, you have to be incorruptible. We were chosen of God in Christ by grace. And this is a testimony that a lot of professing Christians deny because they want to make something about their choice. But the scriptures teach us that we were chosen without merit. Christ alone is the elect of God by merit. We are loved because of our election and redemption in Christ. Those two words are important. We are loved because of election in the one who has merit and then his work of redemption. And that is our standing before God. We stand before God because of election and redemption. So all our merits are found in Christ. We have no merits to bring to God as to cause him to love us. All our merits are derived from him and are not intrinsic to us. But Christ is loved because he is God. So the love of God towards those in Christ has to be redemptive. It has to be redemptive, which means it is experienced by the sinner in the work of salvation, not in the number of toys they have or their bank account, as I said earlier. Remember the verses that I said in John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you're going to hear this from Romans 5, verse 6 and 8. Go, Romans 5, 6 to 8. Apostle Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps, perhaps for a good man, if you can find one, someone would even dare to die But God demonstrates his own love toward us how in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. So the love of God towards us was demonstrated in the state of our weakness, the state 
of not having strength and godliness, enemies of God, and this was all because of sin. And so, sin is that which weakened us so that the love of God could be demonstrated or put on display towards us. <laughs> I'm a chemist. I get paid to connect things. I'm serious. That's what they pay me for. And so when I teach, I want to connect things. I like to see the whole puzzle come together. I don't like things that are disconnected. And that is how men get away with foolish theology because they are not connecting the testimony that God is giving about what he is working in Christ. Many stumble and they stutter to explain the origins of sin they talk of sin as something that just happened as an accident in God's creation that God knew nothing about. And then God went to Jesus and said, Well, Jesus, I did not realize that these men could be this crooked. What are we going to do? Do you want to go redeem them? Oh, Holy Spirit, do you want to go? And the Holy Spirit said, No, I'm not going to do that. Ask Jesus. And Jesus says, Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> that is how salvation is pictured. And that's false. <laughs> God sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation of our sins through his death. So the love of God towards us is expressed in terms of salvation, in terms of propitiation, in terms of satisfaction of God's wrath on behalf of his people. It is not expressed in an easy life. It is not expressed in a good job or in good health, that is not a measure of the love of God. So the provision of Christ as the substitute for his people was the ultimate expression of God's love and giving. Romans 8, 31, 32. Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, or how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So God demonstrates his love by not sparing his own son. He delivered him for us in crucifixion that we may have redemption. And so if you want to know if God loves you or not, don't look at your bank account. <laughs> You're going to be very disappointed. There's only one place to look. Look to the cross. Look to the nails, scarred hands and feet. Look to the death of Christ, the work of Christ. And if you have rested in the gospel, you have rested in the love of God. And there's nothing else better that God can give you other than the cross of Christ. And if you are still working to end the love of God, then you have not believed the gospel. Because the love of God cannot be ended by works. It can't be ended. It can only be received freely by faith as a gift from God. So we deny the gauging of the love of God in any other terms than salvation itself. Not in material terms. God chose us in Christ. That's the love of God. He redeemed us in Christ, accepted us in Christ. That's the love of Christ. 
So yes, God is love, but only for a certain group of people. Those that he gave his son to die for. Okay? The love of God is an electing love and a redemptive love. Because for some, God is still a consuming fire. (laughs) He's still a consuming fire. So we got Lazarus. And so Lazarus was loved of God, loved of Christ, because he was one of his elect, his ship. And that is why Jesus wept for him, and God used the people who came to the funeral to give testimony of that reality when they said, see how he loved him. See how he loved his friend Lazarus. See how Christ loves those that the Father gave to him. And the Lord Jesus was not ashamed to weep for Lazarus. That is the glory of the humility of Christ. That is the condescension of Christ to weep for a dead and rotten sinner. Christ weeping for you. And even in death, Lazarus remained the friend of Christ. He was not forgotten in death. He was the friend of Christ in life and in death. And God used these people to speak of Christ's love for his ship. They have seen Christ before, but they have not seen him in tears. In tears for these whom he loved. And so they said, verse 37 of John 11, and some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying. Now, some of the people began to put some measures as to how that love should have been expressed. There were prosperity gospel preachers at the funeral. There were some prosperity Joe Austin guys at the funeral. There were people who believed in sowing your seed theology. They had seen and heard of the power of Jesus and they knew of his relationship with the family of Lazarus. And they knew of how Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind. And so they're thinking, if he is weeping like this, if he is crying for Lazarus like this, why is he looking helpless in the face of death? His friend should not have suffered this way. Isn't that what men say? This person was baptized and they gave their tithe. Why are things seemingly not working for them? They invited Jesus. They made him Lord and Savior. (laughs) As Jesus abandoned them. Lazarus and his sisters used to host Jesus at their house. And Lazarus even grilled some beggars for Jesus. (laughs) And so why is Jesus seemingly helpless and indifferent to him now. So they are questioning Jesus. Jesus appeared to be hopeless in the face of death of a dear friend. And this is the theology that has plagued the church in our day. That unless some things are working for you, your marriage is working for you, health is working for you, then Jesus has forgotten you. No, Jesus did not forget about Lazarus. He was coming. He already made a statement that this sickness is not unto death. But all these people did not know that. 
So Jesus has already made statements about you that you and I don't know. Just some foolishness. In verse 38, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus groaning in himself at both the death of Lazarus and the foolish commentary by the mourners. He came to the tomb. Jesus was also groaning because shortly afterwards, the informers went and told the Pharisees what he had done. And they wanted him to be killed. And these came in the congregation of the mourners. They want Jesus killed for raising a sinner to life. And they almost killed Lazarus for being raised to life. We hate you because you've been raised from the dead. I'm going to kill you. That's crazy stuff, okay? And so Lazarus is in the tomb. And we are told that this was not just an open grave like we have. This was a tomb that had a side entrance. It opened to the side. And a stone lay not on the top of the tomb, but against it on the side. And this stone was the commentary of what had happened to Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. And he would not be able to come out of that tomb. Verse 39 of John 11, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time, there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus gives a command for the stone to be removed from the tomb door. But Martha had an objection and a warning to make to Jesus. Lord, by this time, there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. It is kinda late, Jesus. The body is now decomposed. And the stench is overpowering the burial spices. The body stinks, so that is not a good idea. We are here to honor the memory of our brother. We are here to protect the dignity of our dead loved one. It's too late, Jesus. Four days too late. You should have been here before he succumbed to death. You should have hurried up, Jesus. We would not have come up to this point. Now, our only hope is in the resurrection to come. But at least this is where we buried him. Now you know where he is. But you may want to reconsider your idea of opening the tomb door at this point. It's not a good idea. We can't do that. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Jesus dismisses that. He is defiant. And he reminds Martha of a previous conversation that they had and said, you are forgetting too quickly. What I told you, Martha, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Obviously, Martha did not think the resurrection was going to happen right then. Jesus says, I told you that this is glory business. And in glory business, you have to believe to see things. For glory is shown 
in impossible situations. There's no glory in doing the obvious. There's no glory in squashing a cockroach. There's glory in killing a lion with bare hands. The glory of God cannot be displayed in very simple situations. Well, there's nothing that is hard for God. Everything is simple for him. But for us, he has to give us difficult circumstances, impossible circumstances, and then he moves. And that is what is happening. And someone will ask and say, well, you guys always talk about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the display of his power is a display of who he is in whatever way he determines to display it. He displays his power in all things. And in this situation, he is going to display his glory, his power over life and death. And he is going to display the simplicity and ease by which that power is communicated and exercised. God has to give you over to a situation that is beyond your power to change if you are to learn of his ways. He makes the situation dead as it were. He puts you in the situation in a tomb and brings you to the end of your ability to resurrect the situation to life. And that's what sin has done to man. God is the one Who shut us up under sin and the law? It is him. So that when Christ shows up, he is glorified in our salvation. And he alone. The situation has to stink. Before he shows up, it has to stink. Men have to come to the realization that they are in the tomb of darkness and death and they are stinking. But men will not want to come out of their stinkiness. Lazarus was stinking, but did not and could not smell himself. Because a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins cannot smell of their own sin and deadness. They think they are still smelling good. But when Jesus shows up and he commands for the tomb door to be removed that had sealed your deadness and your stinkiness, then you begin to realize that you had grave clothes on. (laughs) You begin to realize, oh, Lord of mercy, I was actually in the tomb. I was actually in the tomb. And this only happens to those who have been born again. When you have been born again, you look back and realize, oh, Lord of mercy, praise the Lord that Jesus did not listen to Martha. Because Martha said, don't open it. Jesus says, no, we're opening this today. Remove, remove the stone. Take away the stone. (laughs) Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In verse 42 again, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. And so they took the stone from where Lazarus was lying. And we are not told, John does not tell us who actually did it, whether Mary or Martha, the disciples or 
the mourners, we don't really know. But they did roll the stone away. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and prayed to the Father in the hearing of everyone else. Jesus thanks the Father that the Father has had his request of Jesus. Apparently, the request has already been made before then. Because at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus told his disciples that this sickness is not unto death. So Jesus is in on what is going on. He knows why this is happening. But he prays anyway in the hearing of the people. And he says, I know that you always hear me. And that is not anything that you and I can say to God. That, Father, I know you always hear me. And by hearing, Jesus was not saying that God always hears the audible voice of Jesus. No. He was saying, the Father always answers and does whatever it is that the Son requests of him. The Son does the will of the Father all the time. And the Father also does everything that the Son asks of him. There are no ego or self-esteem issues in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit does not talk about himself and he is okay with that. The Holy Spirit is satisfied to testify of Christ. And there are no self-esteem issues. I am with Oprah today. The Holy Spirit does not go to Dr. Phil and Oprah to learn about self-esteem. It does not work like that. So the Father always hears the Son. I know, I know you always hear me and our salvation is secure because the Father always hears what the Son said. And the Son said, I want these that you've given me to be with me and behold the glory. Oh, so if the Father always hears that, that is the basis of our security. The Father is going to make sure that none will be lost. (laughs) He will bring every one of them to behold the glory of Christ. So Jesus says, I'm only speaking this way in the hearing of the people so that these who are standing by here may believe that you sent me. So the death of Lazarus was so that some funeral mourners would be drawn to come and meet with Jesus and hear his testimony of himself. To hear about the origin of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. To save some and to drive others mad. Because some believed And yet some went and told the Pharisees, say, come get him. That's just amazing sovereignty that Jesus would cause death to bring people that he may preach himself and cause others to go mad. That's the God of the Bible. Verse 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So Jesus has made some connections with heaven in the hearing of the people. Then he cried with a loud voice to confirm that connection that he had just made with heaven. Lazarus comfort. But Jesus, why cry out? Why are you crying out? Your power does not need you to cry out. Why are you crying out? Here's the clue. John 5. John 5, 25-29. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This conversation is about salvation and the end times. And it is confirming that Christ is the son of God. He is the son of man who causes the resurrection of the dead. And this is what is going to happen at the end of the ages. It is he who is going to speak and the dead are going to rise. And he says, Lazarus is my instrument. <laughs> Remember also John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Because that's a question of the gospel. So Lazarus is dead, but he had the voice of the Son of God. But how do the dead hear? They are dead. So they can't hear. But not with Jesus. Everything hears Jesus when he speaks. He said in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I tell you that if these should keep silent, because remember the people were saying, okay, you tell your disciples to keep quiet. And he says, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Okay. As we close this part of the teaching, we want to work on coming forth and hearing. How do the dead hear? Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. But Jesus if you have power to command a dead man to come to life, why did you need help with removing the tomb door? Because it would seem that that's the easiest of things to do. You should just have been able to speak it and the tomb door would have listened. No, Jesus did not want to appear to have tempered with the door. Remember, the people have to believe that he was sent of the Father. He wanted the people to see for themselves that his power is what was causing the resurrection of Lazarus so that they may believe. But why call the name of Lazarus? For two reasons. He knew the name of Lazarus because he is a good shepherd and the good shepherd knows he calls his sheep by name. He knows his sheep by name and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd even in death. <laughs> even in death. Number two, there may have been other people buried in the same tomb with Lazarus as was the practice in the time and Jesus was not doing a general resurrection. Jesus was preaching the gospel. The gospel call is a particular call. It's addressed to those that should be raised from their tombs. Lazarus is buried. He is dead. He is stinking. And that is a picture of the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. 
Lazarus was dead and could not come out of the grave. He could not even knock to say, please remove the tomb door for me, for I want to come out. No, he was dead. He lacked ability to do anything. And so the sinner lacks the ability to hear anything about the gospel until Christ speaks to them. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. The sisters, the mourners, could have commanded Lazarus to come forth until they had lost their voices, until they turned blue. But Lazarus would not have come forth. Why? What is the difference? Because you and I can also say, Lazarus, come forth. We can go to the cemetery and try that and see who can come. No one is going to come. What is the difference? The difference is not the command. The difference is who is saying the command. Is the power and authority in the person saying the command. Is Christ. Okay? Jesus said this in John 17, 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So Christ has authority. Jesus is God, and it is he who does things by speaking. And he is demonstrating his power over death, and he is saying he is the God of the old creation who spoke things into existence. Remember, the book of John begins with telling us the creation story. In the beginning was the word. And John, in the next five verses, he begins to tie Genesis chapter 1 with John chapter 1. He gives us the themes of in the beginning of darkness, of life and light. And he is telling us that the one who was in the beginning, who created all things by his word, is the same one who has come for the second creation. And so the death of Lazarus is also an installment of the second creation. He is beginning to work the work of salvation. So that's what is happening. John is even by this telling us that Christ is God. But see this. Lazarus' spirit could not go into the body of another dead body. It went back into Lazarus' body. No confusion. <laughs> no confusion. God has all this under control that you will never find your soul in the body of a shark in the resurrection. No. It's going to be put exactly where it belongs. Because he is that good. <laughs> and he doesn't have a filing system. Say, okay, uh, who saw is this? Let's go. Uh, stand, 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 stand. Okay. No, it doesn't work like that. So the human being born in Adam is born spiritually dead. And that means with no ability to come to Christ. With no ability to choose Christ unless Jesus calls them to life. See that Jesus called the name of Lazarus only because he wanted only Lazarus to rise to life. And that is particular redemption. The love of God for the elect is particular. This is what is in operation. For Lazarus, this was an effectual call. It was an irresistible call 
Because people say, well, I have power to resist the gospel. I can decide to not come to Christ or to come to Christ. No, a dead sinner cannot decide. A, a, a person who is dead cannot decide to drink medicine or take medicine. You can bring all the prescriptions that you want to them in the mug. They are not going to take it. Why? Because they are dead. And if they take the medicine, it means they are not dead. So if a sinner comes to Christ and they believe the gospel, it means he raised them already. Otherwise, they are not coming. So it is foolishness to say that a sinner can resist the gospel when God has spoken. It is impossible to resist the power of God. Human will has not power to resist death. And so it has no power to cause its own resurrection or to believe the gospel. Because to believe the gospel is a spiritual resurrection that actually God does. But some sinners are claiming that they also have the power of command to cause their own spiritual resurrection from their little tombs by their own so-called free will. No, unless Jesus shows up, none is coming to Christ. Pay attention to this. After Lazarus was raised, we'll finish. We're not very far away. I'm, I'm encouraging you so that you don't faint. It's an exhortation. You need to be exhorted. <laughs> <laughs> After Lazarus was raised, he knew exactly who had raised him from the dead. Lazarus knew that it was not the sisters who raised him from the dead. He knew that it was not himself who caused his own resurrection and not the mourners. He heard the voice of the Son of Man saying, Lazarus, come forth. And there was no negotiation with that command. It was a divine command, a divine imperative. And Lazarus did not say, Oh, Jesus, how is the weather looking like before I come out? Is it raining or cloudy or snowing today? He did not say, Wait, Jesus, maybe a week from today, I just need to get some more rest. No, when Jesus speaks, you have to come. When the son of man speaks, you have no option but to come. And if you came, it happened one way. He spoke. <laughs> he spoke. That's the only way. He has to speak. He has to show up. He has to speak. If Jesus does not come and he doesn't speak, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Verse 44. That sounds like the last verse 10. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. When a person had died, they bound his or her body with some grave clothes. They wrapped him or her, and that covered their whole body, including their face. And that is also a picture of what sinners do to other spiritually dead sinners. They'll come and they'll cover you with dead works. Works that do not clean the conscience. They'll bind you 
and wrap you in their own programs of salvation by works so that you are not able to use your hands to do anything else. And they commit you to their program by putting a stone over your tomb, making sure you will not escape from their grip. I'm telling you, it's there in the text. I'm going to show you. And, and my friends, you will not be able to escape once you have been tied to the works of man. You won't escape. They may even embalm you. Remember Brother Arthur, where he was before he met with Sister Kathleen, he was already bound by the grave clothes of the works of man. And they call that the gospel. They will even embalm your body and make you smell clean for a minute. Like things are working well, but after four days, the stench of that falsehood is going to come out and they will know it. They know it. Mother knew it. (laughs) And that is why mother said to Jesus, no, it's not good in there, Jesus. Lazarus stinketh. (laughs) But praise the Lord Jesus Christ does not listen to the testimony of man. You don't tell Jesus what to do. Martha said, Lazarus stinks, but do not open the tomb. Don't raise him. Don't tell him the truth. Many will not tell you to come out of your falsehood, even though they know it. They won't tell you. Misery loves company. And many will say, you're okay. You were saved before you were even saved. Because you were baptized or you were sprinkled if you were like me who grew up in the Roman Catholic. Or you sang in the church or you were giving money to the church. Those around you are they who are busy making you a Christian before Jesus has showed up. And they don't want you to know the truth because it exposes them. And so they don't want the tombstone to be rolled away from you (laughs) and to tell you of the truth of your deadness and your inability to believe the gospel and to be righteous before God. But Jesus came and raised us up out of the place of dead religion. He made us alive. He made us alive. And praise God that he made us alive. See that Jesus did not raise Lazarus and leave him in the tomb. If Jesus raises you, he has to get you out of your false religion. He does. And he has to remove you from the place of that false religion. He has to set you free. Loose him and let him go. Let him go. That is a picture of the freedom of the one who has been set free by Christ. It is a picture of the gospel. Do not be entangled again by the yoke of slavery. See that Lazarus was dead. He was already dead. And yet people bound him with grave clothes as if he could do anything. Like he could just roll out of the tomb. <laughs> like, okay, we're going to make sure that you don't roll out. But not only that, they put a tomb, they rolled a stone and placed it on the tomb door. And they did not stop there. And then they went mourning. We'll <laughs> be crying for you, Jenny. 
And this, the religion of man on display, what man will do to you when you are dead in trespasses and sins and have no power that comes from the truth of the gospel. Man will come and bind you to their programs and they will bury you under their doctrine of death, the doctrine of false religion. They will even put some burial spices to make the dead religion smell good, a lot of good works. And then they will mourn over you and put a tombstone on you to seal your fate. And they know you're stinking. They know. They know you're stinking. Because as they are telling you what to do behind the scenes, they are talking about you. Talking about you. And so we not want your tombstone to be removed because the religion of man stinks. My dear brothers and sisters, before Christ came and raised us from the tomb and commanded the stone to be removed, we were bound from head to toe. We were bound, we were fully immersed in the stinkness of false religion, working a righteousness that was like a filthy rag, stinking rag. Okay, and we were like children. Apostle Paul says we were like children being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And many rejoiced of us and they even boasted. They even boasted about us to say, oh, look, I have another disciple. Apostle Paul taught this in Galatians. I won't expand it much because I shall teach in the book of Galatians in the next few weeks, the Lord willing. But Apostle Paul taught that in Galatians 6, verse 12 to 13, when he was talking about circumcision. Apostle Paul said, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, you see, they are desiring to make a good showing in the flesh. These would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, only that they may not believe the true gospel. Verse 13, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire, listen to this, to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want you to do the same thing that they are doing so that they can boast about you and say, Oh, look, we have Jeannie now. (laughs) Come join us. But Apostle Paul says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why stand fast? Why stand fast? Because there will always be people trying to push you over into something else that is not the gospel. So he uses the language, this military language, Someone is standing up against their enemy and he says, resist your enemy. Do not be pushed over because they are coming to push you over. So stand in the freedom that Christ has given us. Also, naturally, we are bound to want to fall back to the old ways. That would wrap us again with the same grave clothes that Christ has already commanded to be removed from us. That would put us back into the stinking grave. 
But Jesus continues to say, set him loose and let him go. Because that's the true gospel. And we'll continue to proclaim that. Set him loose and let him go. Why? If the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's our gospel. Amen. We are done. Oh, you guys are so good. Let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for coming to our tombs and raising us up from the stinkiness, from the death, and commanding even the gravestone to be taken away from us. And even now, Lord, we walk because you commanded that we should be set free. We thank you for the freedom of the gospel. Free from condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that's what the Lord was preaching to us. And we thank you, Lord, for such a hope. Because left to ourselves, and in the hands of other sinful men, we would be put back into the tomb. We would be wrapped up again, even willingly, in the same grave clothes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your people. May you cause them to remember these things for your sake. We pray and thank you in your precious name. Amen.